with this wilted, limp, you know, totally dehydrated thing. And I'm like, I, I will try my best, but this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Down and you'll there. need a pretty good magnifying glass to see this, but. Yeah, unless you have sweet eyes like me. I got hawk eyes. Mm, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Those are just for style. The, these glasses are, yeah, purely style. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. It's right. to give me that kind of sexy, geeky vibe thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hello, Take It or Leave It listeners. Welcome back to the Take It or Leave It podcast. I'm Nick Farrington. This is Ethan Wise. And we are bringing you part three of our series on pest management for your garden, around the home, house plants, landscape, all those things. We originally thought this was all going to be one episode. (laughs) And then we're like, oh, (laughs) this is... This, this it's a pretty is, broad category. It would have been a three hour, probably close to a, probably at least two and a half hour episode. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not at the Joe Rogan podcast. Almost. Uh, almost. Yeah. I mean, anytime, any, any day. Mm. Yeah. It's a long, be a long episode. Yeah. I figured that maybe we figured probably people would appreciate a breakdown. Yeah. A little bit of a reprieve. So today's <laughs> weekly pr- reprieves into this <laughs> into the, into all these uh, bombardments of information. But once again, this topic is, and again, we've just covered the stuff that comes up the most as far as pests and diseases in the garden. But this is a topic you and I would deal with responding to questions on what weekly, mm-hmm. or if not daily, in bu- in busy season. Yeah. Um, working in garden centers, interacting with customers and clients. Yeah, I find, so this episode is going to be more so on the disease control, Mm -hmm. which I don't talk to people as often as I talk to about insect control. Sure. But I do get it. And also insect related pests are easier to like visually see there's a problem going on. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. The, uh, the fungal control, you know, there's... You are somewhat limited. I do feel like there's less fungal control options than there are pest control options. Definitely on the consumer end, yeah. As far as, yeah, like over-the-counter, what you can buy, what I would find myself more regularly talking to people about. Mm-hmm. Now, where we worked at before at Hair Nursery, had what we refer to there as plant pharmacy, had a pretty large, probably one of the largest retail collections of chemical control organic and inorganic from fertilizers herbicides insecticides fungicides lawn control so pretty impressive but even the fungicides that they had that were readily available over the counter were were still somewhat limited however some of the fungicides uh, one of the ones we'll talk about is broad spectrum right so it's pretty much treats most things so we didn't have to pinpoint it the same way that sometimes we had to do with uh, insect control right you right. say like oh you have this 
spray this. Right. And you'll do it at weekly intervals or you'll do it at biweekly intervals mm-hmm. or you'll do this, you know, sometimes m- at a particular time of year. Right. Yeah. You know, or like, oh, you know, this is this problem. So you'll spray dormant spray in spring before it buds out and. Uh, you know, that's it. You missed your window. So try again next year. Sure. But yeah, so it won't be probably as in depth of a conversation, but still very useful information. And hopefully people will feel comfortable going into a garden center and getting what they need to control some of their issues. Yeah. However, what we talk about will look plant related ones anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't show them your rashes, please. <laughs> <laughs> we can be smart people, but it's that's that's not what we're going to be able to help you out with (laughs) but yeah with the controls though you know it can be tough with certain fungal infections to know for sure if it's fungal but there are some things that i tend to look for to try to make sure that what i'm diagnosing as fungal is fungal sure and oh i hate when people don't bring in samples that's one thing i don't think we've really brought up and could have been brought up before but If you're going to come into a garden center and you would like someone to help you diagnose something. Or if you're emailing in a picture or whatever. Take good pictures. Multiple pictures. uh, Yes. And up close Mm -hmm. or bring in a sample and a fresh sample. More than just one leaf. Yes. And and some people will go about bringing in a sample, but then won't, you know, they'll have ran other errands and they wouldn't have kept it in a bag or in water and by the time they bring their sample in it's this wilted limp you know totally dehydrated thing and i'm like i i will try my best but this sucks (laughs) (laughs) i had this reminds me i had a lady once bring in uh she was saying she was having an issue with her arborvitaes they were dying and she didn't know why and she brought in a sample in like a grocery bag and i opened the bag and there were hundreds of bagworms oh my god hundred like it was so infested and she just clipped off a bit not realizing because they make that little cone sure kind of disguise in the previous or last week's episode right oh yeah hundred and i you know and of course once they're in the bag they dispersed from this little branch that she had clipped off and i was like uh was this at hair nursery yeah I don't remember this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's like, so can you get rid of that for me? And I was like, I guess we'll have to burn this. Yeah. <laughs> so you many. Just, did you just run it over with the skid steer? <laughs> I don't know how. I mean, to get that many insects in one singular grocery bag and like not notice because they were so well disguised, I guess it was a lot. It was like something out of fear factor. Yeah. I was not prepared. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> that's that's a lot to deal with. So yeah, with fungi in particular or diseases that you believe your plant has, bring in a sample to your, your garden center of choice. Ask for a horticulturist. Ask for a horticulturist. Ideally bring it in in uh, like a ziploc, like a closed in ziploc. That would be nice, just in case it's some severe, horrible... (laughs) Full of bagworms. Right. Or, you know, it's a fungus that's just sporing all over the place and you don't even know it. We used to have issues with... uh, In Peoria, Illinois, 
we would have a lot of rhizosphera, mm-hmm. which was the needle cast for yeah. spruces, yeah. Uh, specifically, or I shouldn't say specifically, but most more primarily commonly. on Colorado and then the cultivar, the blue spruce. Yep. And that is a very contagious fungus. And widely spreading through the Midwest. Very much so. Yeah. Although down here in St. Louis, not so much. It is far. It is far less of a concern, and I'm curious if it has to do with hotter. Mm. I mean, there's. It's still you guys humid. You guys aren't necessarily drier. Yeah. I I was under the impression that that disease came about and then spread so readily because that particular type of spruce was not as well adapted to this far southern of a climate. Right. So, so since it was warmer and more humid, it then was more likely to be affected by that fungal disease and then spread more rapidly. So I would have assumed it would hit even harder down there. So that's interesting. I, yeah, I'm I'm wondering if it has to do, you know, obviously the spruce is cold hardy, Mm -hmm. but I'm thinking that it has to do with the fact that the summers, which is when it's most prolific can just be so wildly different Mm. where you can have one week where it's 85 Mm -hmm. and gorgeous little breeze in the air and then all of a sudden next week you have with the humidity a heat index of 105 Mm -hmm. and it's just brutal outside and you spend more than three or four hours outside and you're on death's door it feels like i wonder too do i wonder what the rainfall difference is between central illinois and st louis like if there's less rain and splashing and water and wind contributing to those spore bodies spreading in spring yeah that could have an impact i certainly at least in my short period of time here in st louis i don't see as many blue and colorado spruces Mm -hmm. as i see in central illinois Mm -hmm. i don't know what that is and they've definitely been monocropped here a lot i mean you see people with a whole row of them down their driveway or in front of their business yeah the the colorado and blue spruce in central illinois has been very highly utilized yeah but i also we were just having this conversation a little off topic Japanese ivory silk lilac trees, mm-hmm. same thing. We were just having this conversation right. where I see them way more here in central Illinois and not nearly as often as I do in the St. Louis area. Right, They're much more sporadically used and I don't have as many people asking about them, even talking with some of my coworkers. It's just not a tree that they're as familiar with or maybe even have talked about it when they were in hort school right so it's just a very two and a half hour drive Mm. uh, maybe you know two and a half three hour drive and some of the selections of trees are just so dramatically different and on that note and speaking of disease prevalence especially in monocrop trees or trees that are used very commonly and widely in an area if you're looking to get a new tree Take a look around your neighborhood and see what your neighbors have. Great and idea. Get something different. Right. I, somehow, somehow, we have not quite figured out to stop using like the same five trees all the time. Right. You know, I mean, it happened with Dutch elm disease. It happened with the ash borers and the ash trees. Pears. The ornamental pears, the rhizosphera, and the spruce trees. Now the spruce trees. Or even before all that, we had pin oaks, you know, Mm -hmm. that are just garbage trees, in my opinion, uh, with the fungal gall that they get and being weak wooded or 
silver maples that are just notoriously weak wooded right. and get a bajillion helicopters or sycamores or what some people would refer to as a gumball tree mm-hmm. with just those also somewhat weak wooded messy and, tree and is the fungal infection yeah. that can really What's do the, um you look like you're scratching it, someone's <laughs> big beard. Your hand movements right now. What's you're the, <laughs> it gets the multi-branch. Uh, is it w- Witch's Fingers? What's the name for that? Witch's Broom. Witch's Broom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all the, after years and years and years of incidents of the anthracnose affecting it in spring results in that, right? Where do you I get think that? There's witches' brooms. Yeah, there's witches' brooms that will grow from like, kind like of a disease. Ends. And, and then there's witches' broom that can happen that's almost like this new plant forming. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's how we've gotten some cultivars mm-hmm. of trees. I think I could be wrong. I think that the dwarf Alberta spruce and some of the dwarf spruce cultivars mm. started as witches brooms off of other mm. varieties like the dwarf alberta spruce is bred from the white spruce sure and i think that's how it started was it was a witch's broom so essentially a mutation right that grew off of that and someone was like that looks extremely different than the rest of the tree sure and then they took a genetic sample of it found out that there was some differences some sort of mutation that found mm. that they were able to stabilize that mutation and propagate it mm. but yes other times that witch's broom is caused by a disease or a damage or something that has traumatically affected that tree yeah so yeah essentially to circle back if you're looking to get a new tree your chance of having less of an issue down the road of some sort of disease or pest related problem is going to be much lower if you have some diversity in your selection like all the time I see in newer developments, rows and rows and rows down the streets of the ornamental pears, and they're all dying of fire blight or chunks of them break off in the wind. Or if you look at them sideways, they rarely make it past, what, 15 years old, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one right next to the house that one windstorm, half of it broke off. The other oh, windstorm. Oh, that's right. I forgot it, all about that. Yep. The other windstorm, it broke off at the ground. So. Yeah, do a little sweep around your neighborhood and pick something a little different if you can. Right, because, I mean, something like like fire blight on a pear tree, not only is it windborne or can travel by the wind, but also will travel by a bird. Mm -hmm. Another common way for fire blight to move from tree to tree is even on an ornamental pear, it still produces a fruit. You know, it's a small fruit. It's not an edible fruit to us. And it's very invasive. (laughs) Another reason. Exactly. But a tree gets infected with fire blight and it usually works its way from the tip of a branch down and, uh, you know, an infected branch, a bird might land on it, pick off the fruit, eat it, and then fly to another tree and they still have that fungal infection on their beak and then they go and rip off another fruit from an uninfected tree and have passed that fungal infection there. Or if you see some branches dying in your tree that need to be pruned out and you go and prune a bunch of branches and don't sanitize your pruners with rubbing alcohol between branches, you can inadvertently spread that fire blight all over that tree. And I've seen it kill a pear tree in, what, a season? Oh, sometimes less. Yeah. Once fire blight makes its way to the central trunk, yeah, you're floxed. So it's definitely something to keep an eye out as far as... I agree with you entirely. If you're going, if you're in the market for a new tree, 
be aware of your surroundings. Monocultures can always be detrimental. Yep. I mean, I see it too sometimes. You know, you have a, gosh, there's a big shopping center down here in Chesterfield. And all around it are a bunch of crab apples. Mm-hmm. And it's all the same species of crab apple. I'm almost positive it's prairie fire sure. um, by the color of the flower. At first, I thought it might have been royal raindrops mm-hmm. because they can look kind of similar at first with a similar colored flower. Yeah. But the prairie fire they has more of this rounded shape to it, whereas I think the... Mm. The Royal Raindrops would have a slightly pyramidal. Yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming that these are prairie fires, which aren't, I think they're they're rated pretty decent for disease resistance, but I don't think they're rated as high as a Royal Raindrops is. Right. And there's probably 30. Nothing else. No other trees planted in this shopping structure, just these trees. And they are gorgeous, but all it's going to take is one of those trees to get infected and go right down the row. Right. If no one's taking uh, that into consideration or checking it, mm-hmm. it's just going to wipe out all those trees. So, yeah, those monocultures always worry me as a horticulturist. And, you know, one thing kind of going back, one way you can tell if you have rhizosphera on your spruce and it can affect other spruces. It can affect white spruces. It can affect Norway. It can affect Serbian. Norway, I isn't think. Black it, Hills, one that's more susceptible. Black Hills is a cultivar of white. Yes. And isn't it Norway and Serbian are the least susceptible, right? Yeah, I'd say Norway, as far as what we tend to see here in the Midwest, Norway's the most resilient. Sure. Followed by Serbian. And then I think there's a Siberian spruce as well. And that one's very resistant too. Yes. At least that's what I was told. So when we worked at uh, Hair Nursery, one of the head growers for trees in particular, this dude was very, very knowledgeable on trees and had a passion for evergreens. He was under the impression per his research that the Siberian spruce, which he started to bring more in and we were growing them too, that that would be a, and it had a bluish tone to it. Mm-hmm. That that would potentially be a good replacement and now at that time, this was only a couple of years ago, I think a little bit more studying need to be done. Mm-hmm. But I liked where he was going with that of like right. giving it an opportunity and seeing that per his research and things that he had discovered on it, if we tried to grow it, would we see also a similar resilience that we also saw in the Norway? And the variety we were bringing in was pretty new and people aren't super familiar with Siberian spruce. So I think there's a little bit of barrier there as far as sales, but... Right. It's definitely an avenue to consider if you're really attached to that blue spruce kind of look. Pretty much what I started to kind of tangent here, but I I just started recommending people get like a blue juniper, like a Wichita blue mm-hmm. juniper mm-hmm. or I think it's moon glow juniper or moon shadow, something like that. Mm-hmm. But Wichita blue can get 25, 20, at least 20, somewhere between 20 and 30 feet tall and... 10, 12 feet wide, really nice teardrop shade, really good blue color. So you could get that similar look and take up a similar amount of space sure, and do that. But some people are just very much attracted to that Christmas tree shape. And that's what the spruce offers a lot of people. So it was, although down here in STL, you do see a little bit more cedars and cypresses, blue cypresses Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. blue cedars seems like they're temperamental though like they're just hardy to this so yeah so they're not reliable yeah but an interesting blue evergreen color sure so with regards to 
going going back to spruces and rhizosphera, one way to tell if you have it is to cut off some foliage of your spruce tree and ideally lower branches because that's tends to be where you see this fungus take place and move its way up. Cut off the lower branches, put them in an enclosed container or a Ziploc with a moist uh, paper towel, run it underwater, wring it out so it's not sopping wet but has moisture to it. Put it in that enclosed container with the cutoff branches or branch of your blue spruce or Colorado spruce. Leave it in there for like a week or so on top of your fridge or just in your kitchen, somewhere where it's a more controlled environment, not like out in your garage, and circle back around to it. And if you have noticed now that there are black spots on the underside of the needles of that spruce and or you are noticing a color change like this purplish hue starting to happen to the needle there is a good chance that that tree has rhizosphere and needle cast and sometimes can't you see those fruiting bodies those little round black fruiting bodies on the underside of the needle if you find some of that on the ground dying or fallen needles from previous years yeah yes which just show up as what two rows yeah, of, right of down, right down that little dots. ridge. Yeah, just like these rows of black dots down. And there. you'll need a pretty good magnifying glass to see this, but yeah, unless you have sweet eyes like me, <laughs> I got hawk eyes. Mm, yeah, mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you don't so wear glass. Are those just those are just for style? The, these glasses are yeah purely style. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. It's are there? You don't that, even have lenses in those. It's right? to give me that kind of sexy geeky vibe thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, wearing glasses in this field is kind of nice because I get home and I always have to clean my glasses and I wipe so much crap off of them. I'm like, all that could have been in my eyes. (laughs) I'm so glad all of that was not in my eyes. (laughs) Hey, Ethan, do you hear that? What? Oh, it's an ad. Real quick. Thanks for listening to our episode today. You can stay in touch with us by supporting us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash take it or leaf it. And we'll have bonus content on Patreon for all of our subscribers there where you can get extra episodes and snippets from the show that we don't release to all the other platforms. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at take it or leaf it pod. And you can also visit our website, takeitorleafitpod.com. If you have any questions or comments or any stories you'd like us to research or talk about, or hell, send us a picture of a plant you want us to identify, you can send that information to show at takeitorleafitpod.com. You can also follow us on our individual Instagrams. I am at hortwise, H-O-R-T-W-I-S-E. And I am at N Farringdon. N-F-A-R-R-I-N-G-D-O-N. Thanks so much. We'll get back to the episode. Oh, you got me. <laughs> anyway, so th- that was that's my little spurt on understanding that fungal infection. A little bit more prevalent, I'm assuming it's been now a year and a half or so since I lived in the Peoria area, but do you still feel like you see that on spruce trees in central Illinois? I can't remember the last time I saw a blue spruce that I wouldn't have recommended to be just cut down. 
they certainly were in that top tier of trees for us up in that area that were being removed. You had your ash tree and you had your spruce tree, pear tree. Those were all extremely common removed trees. Spruces were certainly up on that list. Yeah, I couldn't tell you the last time I saw one that looked good. Wow. Yeah. It's definitely not the same thing down here. However, also here in the St. Louis area, you don't have the same or as much of this monoculture like we were talking about before. Right. Hundreds of feet of all these spruce trees. Just like, come on, guys. Yeah. You don't see that down here as often. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned the broad spectrum fungicide. So that's probably a good spot to start. And that can be used to treat some of these diseases that we've mentioned, the rhizosphera. It's, well, and it, it doesn't treat rhizosphera. At least suppresses over time. Yes, it seems to my understanding. And this is coming from knowledge that was imparted to me from other far more experienced horticulturists that I've worked with. And what I was told what chlorothalonil does to which is the main ingredient in these uh, broad spectrum fungicides. Right, right. That's a very common one that that regularly comes up and is listed as a treatment for most fungal infections that you can find on your average garden plant. But what I was told about how chlorothalonil, which it's in a fertilome broad spectrum, and it's just called broad spectrum by fertilome, is that it encapsulates the spore or the fungus that's on the needle and prevents it from sporing. Mm. So essentially, whatever has become infected Mm-hmm. will remain infected and the best thing to do is remove that mm-hmm. and as long as you actively treat it and in the process of removing anything that's infected you could prevent further infection because yeah. usually rhizosphera another great way to control on a blue spruce or a colorado spruce is to not have the foliage touch the ground right is to limit up and um, usually by the point by the point that people are seeing that there's an issue with those lower branches thinning, which is a classic sign of, of that needle cast disease, mm-hmm. usually by that point you've already lost those lower branches and spreading higher up the tree. Absolutely. Spruces, unlike pines, they for the most part, once they have lost their needles, especially on the older growth, they don't come back. Right. You know, the only way that they're going to produce new growth again is on the tips of those branches. And so, can and often last year's infected needles infect the new candles growing at the tips this year, which right. then are infected for next year's. And, and so it's on. a real pain because there's so many needles, and all those are now all over the ground. Mm-hmm. And so, getting those out is tough because you know that's a very thick tree. So, trying to remove those is nearly impossible. And you try to blow them out, you're just blowing the fungus all over the place. Raking them isn't going to get control of it. So if the trees limbed up far enough, maybe you could do a burn, a controlled burn, you know, maybe with like a a blowtorch or something underneath that tree very safely. At your own discretion. Correct. (laughs) Uh, Not by our recommendation. (laughs) Pines do produce a nice oil that is flammable. So the the idea, you know, if it were if it were me and I felt like this was my control, I would thoroughly soak the tree, the bark and the needles that are still on the tree. And then I would go underneath that tree 
with the torch very close. I'm not I'm not talking about a blow torch. I'm talking about like a like a flame weeder or something. A flame weeder yeah. and and like hit the needles that are still on the ground mm-hmm. uh with the hope of any needles that are still there you're burning the potential fungus that's on them. But but anyway, if, yeah. If you're on that note in general, it's easier for trees and shrubs something that has a bigger footprint, but if you have a tree, shrub, whatever, that's clearly got some sort of disease issue, whether it's bacterial or fungal. I mean, this would apply to tomato plants in your garden across the board. If you have a plant that has all or, or some of its parts are diseased and you can you know, use a cultural control to physically removing that diseased portion, whether it's your tomato plant that got Bacterial wilt or fusarium or your spruce that has rhizosphera and you need to cut off those lower branches and and get rid of as many of those needles as you can. The best practice is to, you know, remove those dead portions or diseased portions and get rid of all those needles or the leaves or whatever that have fallen and either throw them away or burn them because... Don't throw them in your compost pile. Yeah, if you put them in your compost pile, you're just going to spread it around. But yeah, so I guess, you know, with the, the needle cast, since we are kind of on that with chlorothalonil, limb up your spruce tree to as far as a preventative measure and that allows better airflow because that's really what's happening is you have these this very thick, full tree that's got foliage all the way down to the ground and you have a wet spring. You've just had this perfect and damp incubating and chamber in there. Right. So if right. you limb that up, you know, two, three feet then you're allowing for much better airflow, reducing the likelihood of fungus. But yes, rhizosphera can move very quickly up a spruce tree. It can kill two, three, four feet a year and go all the way up. And a lot of times what we would see in Peoria is people come in with a tree that's already halfway infected because they took too long to, to, they thought, oh, it was just a bad year. It was dry. And then they, you know, they always had, you know, some sort of excuse as to what took them so long to get in. And by the time they'd come in, this tree's half gone, you know, this 30 foot tree that's lost, you know, you know, three years of growth up from the bottom of the tree and they want to know if they can save it. And like you can, but you're going to, you now have a very tall topiary spruce. (laughs) And if your cat, if your tree is dead halfway up off the ground now, and you're catching it now and coming in like n- it's done in summer, moment of figure, silence for your tree. Uh, yeah, well, you know, if it's halfway up, for example, the lowest three or four tiers of branches, like you said, next year those are going to be gone too. Right. So usually, if somebody came in in that case and it was above like a third and it wasn't like way, way, way early spring where they could catch and treat Mm -hmm. do a first round of treatment. Cause I think we skimmed over a bit, but in this particular case with this particular plant, you need to treat for like what, three or four seasons in a row to really try to limit. And that has to be done at a very particular time in spring when the candles are out a certain length and that sort of thing. Correct. So you have a pretty short window of when you can treat this. So if that tree is already a third of it up from the ground is dead, just start figuring out what your replacement is going to be. I agree. So and there might be stronger fungicides that are not available over the counter that an arborist or uh, a professional horticulturist with a sprayer's license might have more access to in a commercial only store they can buy as long as they have their license to spray and understand what they're doing with that. But as far as what's available, 
at a garden center over the counter chlorothalonil is really the only thing that a homeowner could spray on something like that and chances are even if you're paying an arborist even if there is something that they could come out and inject chances are they're going to have to do it multiple seasons in a row still and at that point again in your cost and trying to save that tree you'd be well on your way of you just want to spend a thousand dollars get it removed right and you know consider yeah move you plan something six eight feet away and something totally different right okay so we definitely opened with very specific things i think we could skim through a couple other common fungal diseases that could also be covered under broad spectrum gosh just about everything yeah whether you have anthracnose is a pretty common springtime yep whether you have anthracnose on your sycamore tree or sometimes it can affect maple trees other things it can affect too anthracnose is so broad it could affect it's like a dozen or more varieties right oh yeah i mean mean, it could affect sansevieria you know a mother-in-law's tongue yeah yeah uh and then can affect something that's so different like the Mm -hmm. sycamore tree and that typically presents in spring when rains are starting and things are cool and damp well i guess this episode will be released a little bit later but right now we are, you know, this episode might be released in, in June, yep. uh, where here we are at the very last week of May when we're doing this recording. And right now I am seeing anthracnose. I have sure. already helped two people this week diagnose that what they have on their tree is anthracnose. And those cooler spring, early summer temps combined with more frequent rains, cloudier days, that all kind of creates a good environment for this particular fungal disease, which presents usually on the newer growth or on the new leaves from this season on like a deciduous tree, for example, that aren't fully grown all the way out necessarily. They tend to get what blackening of the margins or dark brown. It's very common does start to work its way in from the margins of the leaf. Sometimes you get like a nasty, darker, blackish patch patch in the center. Yeah. But usually starting in from the margins and it just looks disgusting. And it's typically more of a cosmetic issue unless the tree has other significant health issues going Mm -hmm. on. Right. But then a lot of times once that progresses further as spring goes on, that's when you can start to see some leaf drop. Yes. Which then typically like say on a maple, for example, As the season goes on, that tree will then push out newer leaves. And once the tree has pushed out those newer leaves, the the ideal conditions for that fungus to thrive have passed. Like if you're getting into summer. I just had the exact conversation with someone with regards to anthracnose. Right. Was here we are like, yeah, it's you're you're not going to be dealing with this for much longer. Your tree's going to look thin after it drops all the infected foliage and then after yeah it's going to push out new growth the temperatures the summer temperatures are not going to be hospitable to this fungus and you're good but that doesn't change the fact that you might get it again next year yeah don't leave those fallen leaves rake them up get rid of them burn them garbage whatever yes um, because you want to limit those spores that are around to reinfect for next year and there are also arborists that if you have a large tree you know you have this giant 60 foot sycamore tree and it's looking real rough. Definitely something you could talk to an arborist and they might have some injections that they can do for that tree. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I'm of the mindset that usually a healthy tree, you know, if you're periodically fertilizing that tree and there's no 
big giant broken branches or open wounds that haven't been properly pruned it's going to look rough for a little bit but then we'll bounce right back and now that's another one you do what a couple applications in spring right as that new growth those new leaves are unfurling and the thing is here we are we're talking about sycamore trees and spraying chlorothalonil you're not going to be able to spray a tree like that true that's gonna more have like to. smaller, younger trees, or if you have that Japanese would be more maples. susceptible. Yes, yeah. you know, usually a big tree that's already a two foot diameter or bigger. Yeah, they'll figure it out on their own. Yeah, you're not going to be able to spray a sixty foot tree very easily on your own, if or at all. <laughs> yeah, if a sixty or eighty year old tree really needed help from humans, I feel like there'd be a far less lot less of them. True, <laughs> they're pretty good at taking care of their own baggage. So yeah, so that's anthracnose for you, and you'll see it affecting other things, but that would be one of those things where if you're noticing these brown lesions, fungal infections moving their way in, in the late spring time period, at least here in the Midwest, you can eat, you know, grab a couple of those leaves, ideally ones that have freshly fallen off of the tree, mm. put those in a Ziploc bag or an enclosed container and bring those to your garden center and hopefully a horticulturist would be able to identify that for you and walk you through close to what we have spoken to you about. If it's a large tree, you're probably okay. If it's a small shrub, you can use a spray like chlorothalonil or even use, you know, if the place that you're going to only sells organic, you could try copper fungicide. Yep. And copper fungicide is a commonly used organic fungicide, but it is something... Or that- for organic use. Sometimes they're not explicitly organic or good or omri listed organic sure but for natural it's a natural occurring thing that you can use but with copper fungicide you do need to be cautious because copper can be toxic to plants it's a it's a nutrient that plants need in parts per million so very small doses Mm -hmm. and in the soil it's pretty immobile so a little bit goes a long way it'll stay in that spot for a long period of time allowing that plant to pull what it needs so now here you are applying it to the plant so if you are going to buy it concentrate you need to be extremely diligent about mixing it I highly recommend just buying it at a store ready to use. Sure. Like a hose def- end sprayer that you just screw that bottle or right a, onto your hose. Right. Or just a pump sprayer. Yeah. And definitely don't use it more than once a week. Right. Seven to 10 day intervals while the problem persists and then stop. And some of these chemicals that we've mentioned or, or are going to mention will have different application intervals depending on the time of year, the type of plant, and so on. So definitely pay close attention to those labels. You don't want to just say, hey, I have this problem. I'm going to spray this plant three times a week until it goes away because you can definitely overdo. Sometimes by the time you see the symptom, the spores are already done. That They've already right. spored. The fruiting bodies of that fungus are no longer controllable. You know, you're you spraying the damage isn't controlling the problem. Right. So, yes, there are definitely and there's so many different things to be aware of. So get your fungal infection identified. Talk to a horticulturist. Like you just said, make sure you're spraying it at the right time. There's sometimes when it's too late. You know, like cedar apple rust, you know, if you miss the window to spray for that, you might as well just wait until next season and try again. Sure. You know, if it's June or July and you're noticing this problem on your plant and it's identified as rust, 
you've missed your spring application mm-hmm. uh, to treat that fruiting body with something like a dormant spray or something like that. And again, several of these can take multiple seasons to kind of suppress that issue that's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, chlorothalonils, definitely, you know, the most broad spectrum, hence why fertilome just listed as fertilome broad spectrum. And that'll be something that you can use to treat black spot on roses or just black spot in general. You could use it to even treat botrytis, which is that kind of whitish fungus. Kind of molding Mold. on, on new buds, flower yes. buds. Yes. You see it on roses. You see it on tropical hibiscus. Mm-hmm. All sorts of things like that. Yep. And uh, to help treat a number of different issues. One thing I think is worth noting, too, that with broad spectrum fungicides like chlorothalonil or another one is microbutanil as another commonly referred to one. Those are non-selective fungicides, also something to be considered of, that there are beneficial fungi. And when you spray these and if you are spraying the ground with them, there are some systemic fungicides that you can use to spray around the soil of your plant, you are not only potentially killing the negative fungus, but you are also killing any beneficial fungus that is in the soil. Like beneficial mycorrhiza that's in the soil, which Mm -hmm. that'll be a whole topic we'll have to cover later. Sure. So just like insecticides, in your attempt to eradicate or control a negative, you very well, if not done properly or just purely because there's no way to prevent it, you could also be damaging a beneficial. So just always go into that knowing, you know, and weighing your options as far as, is this something, you know, like anthracnose where we were just talking about, do I just kind of let it do its course? I do my cultural control the best that I can by removing infected branches or portions of the plant or fallen leaves and then just kind of let nature do its course or run its course, I should say. Yeah. And so a couple other fungal issues that we see come up pretty often, and this can these both can affect trees, they can affect veggies in your garden. Those are verticillium and fusarium. Fusarium, I feel like if I see it, it's usually affecting something in someone's garden, like tomatoes or something else that's related to tomatoes potatoes right maybe even a eggplant or something something else that's in that nightshade a bell pepper Mm -hmm. but i feel like more often than not it's it's affecting a tomato plant sure and man it can be ugly on that tomato plant sometimes when it's that bad you just got to get rid of the damn tomato and usually that presents as like what a pretty distinct half of the plant body getting necrotic and dying. Oh, yeah, turning yellow and curling over and looks real bad. Yeah. And it's tough because it can be in the soil. Right. And I do believe that chlorothalonil is listed as treating that. Hold, please. And that's a good reason, again, why you want to rotate around where you're planting your veggies in your garden year to year because if you're always planting your tomatoes in the same place you're always planting your potatoes in the same place so on anything that can pick up that disease if you're always putting it in the same spot in the soil that can be if you end up with an issue like fusarium in the soil you can end up kind of reinfecting year to year those types of plants if they're always in that same spot 
This is, oh, maybe chlorothalonil isn't listed as being a treat. I knew that it wasn't something that I would highly recommend. I usually just recommended removing the plants if I ever noticed it and not planting tomatoes again in the same area. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is from, for Fusarium wilt, this is taken directly from IPM, which is integratedpestmanagement.edu. Okay. So this is exactly what they, this, everything that it's they do. It's their thing. Right. This is directly from their website. In general, Fusarium wilt diseases are best controlled by using resistant or tolerant cultivars, not by using soil-applied fungicides. Liming soils and using nitrate nitrogen fertilizer have been effective for management of Fusarium oxysporum on chrysanthemum, aster, gladiolus, cucumber, tomato, and watermelon. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting about the nitrate-based nitrogen fertilizers, not using something, oh, shoot, what's the one that's this highly flammable gas? Ammonia. Thank you. Hmm. And I didn't know that the liming, so there's a pH issue there, too, that I did not Mm. know about with the fusarium wilt. So liming the soil, that means you're raising the pH of the soil. Will that then make phosphorus uptake difficult? It can. Hmm. So there's probably uh, this fine line as far as how far you can go, or mm-hmm. you will just hit them with a bloom booster. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or maybe even do like a foliar phosphorus application. Hmm. You know, if you dilute, you know, like a liquid fertilizer or an organic liquid fertilizer that has a little bit higher phosphorus count in that, and you dilute it just enough, and you can maybe do a foliar application. Sure. Um, of that plant and get it phosphorus that way if you have to lime the soils and you're concerned about that. Mm. Hmm. And when they're mentioning the Fusarium resistant cultivars, that's pretty common to see in a lot of hybrid tomatoes, for example. Yes. You'll see big boy tomato parentheses F1 or V1. You know, they'll have these different indicators that are usually an indicator of either some sort of fusarium resistance or verticillium resistance and so on. And so that's what some of those... Just like with basil saying DMR Mm -hmm. after some of the the cultivar names, that's downy mildew resistant cultivar of basil. Exactly. And so... Oh, go ahead. Oh, and then I was saying then with verticillium, or is that what you were just getting ready to move on to? Yep, exactly. Gotcha. Okay. So with verticillium... Uh, there isn't anything you can do. And it's for the most part, it was same with Fusarium. It's one of those things. It's a colony underground and best case scenario, you make that area of the ground inhospitable to the best of your ability to that fungus through cultural application, removing what it wants to feed on or like what IPM was just saying here, liming the soil creating something for that, you know, so that that fungal colony just kind of moves on because they can move. Yeah. And as a preventative, a lot of times I'd recommend with tomatoes mulch at the base to prevent that soil from being able to splash up on the lower leaves of the plant when you're watering uh, or when it rains. That makes sense. Some people prune up their tomato plants to remove those lower branches. I do. Um, Yeah. I I know that was kind of a debated topic on does that then open up weakened areas that could be an inlet for some of those soil-borne diseases. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. but I usually, as long as it was a clean pruner, it was less for the potential of it splashing up from the ground and more for allowing 
more energy to go into the top portion of that sure. plant where I'm going to get the best into more harvest. of those fruiting branches. Right, right, yeah. right. And allowing for a sturdier stem to be created instead of wasting energy on these lower branches that aren't going to do anything for me as far as harvesting goes. Yeah. But yes, also kind of thinking of reducing a airing out the plant right. and, and less branches for splashing to, to happen and then spores to... Right. At least I thought I was doing And then something. adding that mulch barrier. Yeah, that's smart. And then, too, often with some of these disease issues, if you're not overhead watering... That'll help uh, dramatically. Yeah, yeah, because most plants don't want wet leaves. Water the roots. Especially you have, if you're watering every day yeah. or you have irrigation that's coming out every other day and you're constantly saturating the foliage of that plant that's not normal yeah pop-up pop-up sprinklers are for turf grass yes if you have an irrigation system and you're using it for your landscape i'd highly recommend switching over to a drip system you will save 80 90 percent of your water use when you're delivering water directly to the base of that plant rather than broadcast spraying it and you have wind and evaporation and heat and all that stuff that you get a lot of waste and you don't get the the depth of watering with a misting pop-up sprinkler than you would on a drip system. Right, right. So, yeah, with verticillium, well, like Fusarium, in the soil, it's a colony, and there's really not much you can do to it because it is in the soil. And the things that potentially you could do to control it, potentially hard emphasis on that, are also going to cause so much damage to the beneficial fungus in the soil mm -hmm. as well. You'd be almost sterilizing the soil. I've heard doing like the sheets of black plastic to get extra heat from solar radiation and kind of baking the soil. But yeah, you're going to kill everything. Right. Yeah. Verticillium usually in our industry is just see what happens. Yeah. You know, if it's a large established tree, Maybe it'll be able to fight it off or isn't it once it gets into that main trunk, you're kind of there's not much out. you can do. And that will present in a tree if you cut off a branch like a dead or dying mm -hmm. branch and you cut it lengthwise with kinda a knife. Like, kind of like you're uh, cutting a carrot or something. Yeah. Like if you're peeling a carrot. Yep. With a knife. When you cut into that branch. If it's verticillium and that's in the, the wood of that tree, that will show up as black striations mm -hmm. in that cut wood. So if you cut it, when you cut the branch off of the tree, you know, it would show up as a ring or rings in that cross section. But if when you cut it, like like Ethan said, like a carrot, it'll show up as those dark striations. And that's when you know you have verticillium. And also can show itself in irregular yellow large patches that might be dying you know you have like the rest of this tree that looks fine and then all of a sudden this big huge third chunk of it or a quarter chunk of this tree is just this yellow color just slowly dying like ooh, yeah. i don't know and it will take a tree really fast it can it really is one of those things where there's you just let nature take its course Maybe the tree finds a way to combat it. Maybe you are having to pay to have a tree removed. And verticillium can impact quite a few species of trees. So 
if you do have a tree removed from, because of that issue, you want to be very conscious and looking up what types of trees. There are lists out there. A lot of universities, horticulture programs have published lists on verticillium resistant tree varieties or shrub varieties or whatever it is you're trying to replace so that you don't end up planting another maple where a maple just died and it's still there present in the soil and pretty soon you're picking out a third type of tree to put back there. Mm -hmm. Should we move on to molds? Mm -hmm. So what is it? Is it molds are multi-cell? No, is it molds are single cellular? So all molds are fungi, but a mold is multicellular and a fungus is single cellular. So yeah, here we go. So the difference between a mold and a fungus is a mold usually needs moisture to develop. Mm, Sure. Whereas there's other forms of fungi that do not need that. But a specific mold in that sort of off little sect of fungi needs to have moisture. And molds are always multicellular, whereas a fungi can be either single or a multicellular organism. Hmm. Interesting fungi spread through the air and molds tend to need water in order to spread. Interesting. One chemical that we had mentioned back in our insects portion of this pest management series was insecticidal soap and insecticidal soap is actually also rated for powdery mildew. So on top of being an insecticide miticide, it can also be used to suppress powdery mildew, which does fall into this molds category, which is a little more closely related to an algae than a fungi, therefore being a little bit trickier to treat because you can't treat them exactly like you would with some of the broad spectrum stuff that we had mentioned. And also the uh, neem oil too Yep, is, mm-hmm. is rated as being able to treat powdery mildew. I would imagine on more smaller, like maybe like a full outbreak of powdery mildew. Mm-hmm. I don't know how well it would do. Do you know? I don't, I think it'd be I better don't. performing on smaller, you know, in your herb garden or something. Yeah. Or unless you're using like a very concentrated version of that, of that refined chemical, the azadiractin. Sure. Yeah. And I know that we're describing these insects and diseases to you in this series by audio, but I will also include in the description some photos in links for you all so that you can see exactly what, whether that's with the insects or with the diseases, what the damage itself looks like, and then what the actual pest looks like as well. Right. Yeah, it's, it's one thing for us to visualize it and think of the the discoloration and the modeling that will happen with like spider mite damage or thrip damage or the specific ring coloration of black spots. It's one thing for us to try to describe that. It's another thing to just see it. And we, we grasp that in this sense. So I, I think it's a great idea. So do you want to cover Pythium and Phytophthora? A couple more water molds. Also things, yeah, in the same in the same sense of verticillium, it's those are in the soil, you know, the or more so present in the water. Present in the water that is now being stored in the soil and becomes very difficult to control. That's the issue with these water molds is fungicides aren't as effective because this mold is since they're more algae related. 
Right. It's very difficult for fungicidal treatments to treat that because it's attached and part of this water. It's it's just not the same control. So yeah, with Phytophthora being a water mold and something that exists because of water in the area and is really with that, with it being a water mold, it's really something the best practice is creating an environment to not have it. That's really my best suggestion. You know, it thrives anywhere where there is excessive water or anywhere where there is poor drainage. So having well-drained soils and being more meticulous about your water, especially if it's in an area where you are concerned about poor drainage, not watering blindly every day is one way to do it. Or when you are watering, you know, do it in the morning so that that plant has time to, while the sun is present, to utilize that water as opposed to watering in the evening when the plant isn't photosynthesizing as much. Therefore, it's not using as much water. So the soil is staying moist for longer and nothing's happening to that moisture in the soil. So watering in the morning or late morning, very early afternoon would be more ideal and making sure that you have good drained soil. It's really the best plan of attack towards preventing something like Phytophthora or something like Pythium blight or Pythium wilt is to just create that sort of environment for the plants. Once you have it, there are some treatments you can use. There are some fungicides that you can use in the area, but they will, just like we've previously said, are also going to kill any beneficial fungus that is in the area. And sometimes those beneficial fungi and the symbiotic relations that they have with the plant can offer a sort of resistance or boost the resilience of that plant's immune system to fight off the negative disease. So sometimes your interaction might not do anything other than kill something that's already happening that we can't see Mm -hmm. as far as a beneficial goes doing its own job. And on the note of Phytophthora, that causes a lot of crown rot or root rot. Um, yes. Those types of things, whereas Pythium... Which is rotting the plant at the base of the plant where that central nervous system of roots is coming from, right? Where they're at the base of the rootstock and the scion is usually what's referred to there as the crown rot. And then Pythium, that can affect the roots and also cause stem rots and foliar blights. And again, I'll attach, we have an article here. This is from Greenhouse Mag titled Minding Water Molds. I'll put that in the link as well. And and usually another thing, by the time you may even notice that your plant has something like Phytophthora is in summer. And by the time that's happening, the plant has already been likely infected for a while. But because there was more moisture in the soil, the plant was able to likely produce more roots but then once summer kicks in and it's harder for that plant to root itself Mm -hmm. 
just because it's just trying to survive. You know, it's just so dang hot that usually by summer, an infected plant will start to show the signs of the disease because it doesn't have enough of a strong root system left to also deal with surviving the high summer temperatures. So that's when you usually start to see the decline uh, where you have this yellowing or browning necrotic plant and it's curling that's usually the plant's already been infected for months. You just didn't quite realize that just because there was still enough healthy root system with the moist soil. So yeah, that's, that's another problem too. And by that, by that time it's too late. You know, I wish we had more uplifting (laughs) advice to give people for something like this, but it really is just uh, once you have it, it's a very tough thing to control and you almost just have to, deal with the fact that you have it and remove those plants and hopefully some of your other plants don't get it. I think it's a good practice if you have a large enough space to put tomatoes on opposite corners, you know, so that you don't lose a whole crop or something. Plant things also that, you know, won't get infected with similar diseases that tomato can, like potatoes, you know, and don't plant potatoes next to any of your tomato plants and and things like that will help reduce the likelihood of diseases. And if they do happen, not wiping out your whole crop. Right. Here's, I'm going to read a little clip here from this Greenhouse Mag article. I thought this was an interesting thing that I have a little story about. So this is specific to Phytophthora, and again, they're saying, obviously, species that can cause root rot, crown rot, and aerial blights, as we said, sometimes all three. And then it says, in general, plants with mild root rot produce smaller than normal foliage. Roots and crowns of the plants may reveal dead feeder roots and dark streaks up the stems. Those plants with severe root rot often exhibit stunting of the entire plant. Foliage usually appears wilted, and leaves are smaller than normal. And then this is the bit I found very interesting. Petunias and calabricoas, very common plants used in container plantings, landscapes. Petunias and calabricoas in particular often appear to be suffering from iron chlorosis. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, I was thinking back to one of the previous greenhouses I worked at that loved their annuals and petunias and calabricoas were a huge crop for them uh, that they would mostly were bringing in and right around the peak heat of summer end of june early july those would all start looking really rough and chlorotic but they were also getting watered like three times a day yeah so they were suffering so they were just getting just ravaged by phytophthora yeah and here they were being juiced up by petunia feed or whatever something high iron to try to adjust that chlorosis and it was just from like you said the overly wet conditions in stressful growing environment they're not uptaking water as quick that growing media is sitting there wet getting watered three times a day and uh that explains it the, I know the stunting of the leaves the whole thing yeah one also thing to kind of offer is clarity. So as we were talking about with the wilt, fusarium wilt, and I had listed that liming the soil or raising the alkalinity or pH of the soil can help control fusarium wilt. The opposite is listed for controlling phytophthora. And where one of the 
recommended things that you can use as a cultural method is to use sulfuric fertilizers that'll dramatically lower the pH of the soil mm-hmm. below five. And that can create an environment that the Phytophthora cannot thrive in. Yeah. Or so, anything so else. So essentially you'd have to like use high nitrous <laughs> fertilizers or using sulfuric fertilizers to lower the pH as fast as possible. Yeah. And try to maintain that for, I would imagine, a couple of weeks. And then you can hope that the Phytophthora is gone and now you can try to bring back your severely stressed out plant that just went from fighting a massive fungal infection to having its pH dramatically lowered. And this is likely in summer. So shouldn't be any issues getting that plant back to health. (laughs) (laughs) If there's one thing I really enjoy, it's getting COVID and then getting food sickness, and then going right back to work. And then being dipped in acid. (laughs) (laughs) Right, then being dipped. (laughs) If there's one thing I love, it's gouging an eye out right before I pull my teeth, (laughs) and then decide to have Heath ice cream. (laughs) Oh, and jumping back a topic to fungal diseases, another option for an organic, an OMRI-listed organic that is rated for quite a few fungal issues in plants is cease. And that is, I believe, a bacillus subtilis. It's a bacterial derivative. And that is used because it's derived from that bacteria, allows it to be something that can be listed as OMRI organic for organic use. And I've used that in greenhouse crops to treat a pretty broad variety of fungal-related issues, powdery mildews, downy mildews, all those sorts of things. Okay, yeah, I've never used that, is yeah. it? So since you used it in a commercial setting, and you have I know you've told me about it before, it's just never something that I've used, you know, residentially or at my own place. So with that, is it something you can buy on a residential level? I don't know if I've ever seen cease in a store. Um, What's the active ingredient? I, oh, you said it's a type of bacillus. So yeah. You did say that. I believe you can purchase it online because it's because it's just a derivative of of that type of bacteria. It's not doesn't have a restricted use or anything like that. Okay. Um, but I think I've only seen it in like gallon or bigger sizes, which is a lot for the average person. Gallon I, like concentrate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which, considering it's a gallon and it's concentrated, I want to say the last time I bought some, it was. 80 or 90 for a gallon, which is as far as concentrated pesticides go, that's on the cheap end. Okay. So it's definitely out there. You probably find it on Amazon or some kind of online horticulture specific retailer. Okay. So if you were going to find it, you'd, you'd likely have to go to a, a very specific store. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Chances are to find it in a retail setting, you'd pretty much have to do Sorry, just... online. Okay, yeah, so yeah, cease, like I said before, just not something I was familiar with, so good information to have. Uh, sounds like something that you might have to search for, though, in order to find it. And how do you spell cease, or will you just have that in the link's descriptions? Uh, it's C-E-A-S-E. And C-E-A-S-E, okay. And that's from a company called BioWorks, 
Again, they're not a sponsor, but they make quite a range of plant pest related treatment options that usually fall kind of in that more natural or organic range. One thing worth mentioning too, since you bring it up, as we talked about Phytophthora and you said iron chlorosis, I don't think we touched base on iron chlorosis. Iron chlorosis is sometimes referred to as a disease. I know it doesn't quite fit into what we're talking about here with fungi and eventually bacteria and But chlorosis is sometimes referred to as a disease, and it really is a, more often than not, uh, categorized as a nutrient deficiency or symptoms of the plant thriving in a pH that is not suitable for it overall as the broad interpretation of what chlorosis means in the plant. It's just the yellowing between the veins of the foliage think, you know, just to clarify, chlorosis is a symptom that can be caused by a disease, but in what we were referring to with petunias, we were talking about iron chlorosis being caused by a nutrient deficiency. Right. And so things that can cause levels of chlorosis are nutrient deficiencies in iron and zinc and magnesium, I think copper and Sometimes the issue with that isn't the fact that the nutrient's not there in the soil, but that the pH isn't low enough for it to be able to absorb it from the soil. But just wanted to kind of add that little clarification there as you bring up that you thought, you know, the petunias were suffering from chlorosis and and your manager and or you or other staff members were incorporating iron into those porch pots trying to revitalize them only to you know now have this epiphany that it was likely the phytophthora Mm -hmm. um but anyway just kind of wanted to in case anyone listening was not aware of what iron chlorosis was yeah just kind of explaining that and the reason why we're not incorporating it into this episode is because it doesn't really line up with like I said before, the it being a fungus or a bacteria or a virus, but sometimes is referred to as a disease. Yeah. So jumping back to Cease, I pulled up their website on BioWorks, and I wanted to read this snippet from them. Also, our next topic that we'll get into here briefly is bacterial diseases. And I was remembering that CEASE was rated for those as well. So I'm going to read this because it also covers some of the water molds that we mentioned. So when used as a soil drench, CEASE enhances germination and plant growth by suppressing diseases caused by Rhizotonia, Epithium, Fusarium, and Phytophthora. Mm. Probably most effective is if, do you think it's, if it's incorporated in the soil prior to planting or is this listed strictly as a control as far as a pre- as, instead of a preventative in this situation i would often use it as a preventative because okay as long as we weren't spraying anything that would be you know if we hadn't inoculated with mycorrhiza or something that the the fungicidal action of this was going to affect but i would i would use it as a preventative sometimes which I could see in like annual situation because you don't necessarily need in that small pot with how often you're fertilizing, you don't need a beneficial mycorrhizal growth to get those plants going and ready for sale. Right. 
or uh, even small vegetables. We I did test out some inoculation like that, um, yeah. more for the improved drought tolerance in case we had any fluctuations between waterings. So if we did use any of this after something like that had already been established, it was very sparingly. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then so essentially they're also promoting this as, uh, in their words, the perfect biological alternative to synthetic chemicals and coppers. So controls disease using multi-site modes of action for effective resistance management, can be sprayed up to and on the day of harvest, improves resistance to diseases by increasing plants' natural production of protective enzymes, performance equal to copper-based products without the associated phytotoxicity. So like Ethan had mentioned with some of the copper fungicides, this you would avoid that because it is not a copper-based product. It is safe for beneficial insects and predatory mites. So yeah, interesting there that it is listed for fungal bacterial and some of those water molds that we had talked about. Gotcha. Okay. And so interesting. Uh, were you going to jump back into a little more on bacterial blights? Wilts? Yeah. You know, and also similar to what we've this kind of been the running theme for quite a while now with bacterial infections on leaves. Not a lot you can do about those. There's... It's usually generally listed on whatever reputable source that you are using that bacterial infections kind of have to run their course. There's not a whole lot of things you can use. The best thing to do is to to plant preventatively, to also provide moisture to a plant when needed, to not over apply moisture, to have appropriate quantities of fertilizer in the soil to have healthy soil that has a good microbial life with beneficial fungus in the soil. All those things are what's going to help your plant combat diseases of any kind. And, and that's because it's just got a healthy immune system, just like us. No, no different there. You know, you take care of your body, you, you know, on average can be less prone to illnesses and sicknesses. If you take vitamins and you have a healthy environment same thing for plants so generally where you won't find many controls for bacterial infections unfortunately outside of making the soil healthy practicing crop rotation so you don't have the same things always in the same spot every single year those are really the best things that you can do for bacterial infections. There's really not a whole lot I can add to that and, and planting bacterial uh, resistant cultivars of whatever you are trying to plant. Anything you can add to that? Interesting. Cease also controls bacterial diseases such as Pseudomonas, Erwinia, and Xanthomonas. I don't know which, I don't know bacterial infections enough to know botanicals. Oh. Or Latins. I think Erwinia is the one you can get it in philodendrons. I had an issue with it when I got those Birkins in from Florida mm. early on in COVID. Mm -hmm. They started getting it. You'd get like this watery lesion in the leaf that, I mean, if you squeezed it, it would pop like it was squishy, rotten on the inside and like filling with fluid. And when when that would break open or when the leaf would just naturally like kind of rot off as it spread to the stem of the leaf, 
it had like a really kind of nasty smell to it. Uh, I know some people, I think I saw it described as kind of a fishy smell. I don't know if I would call this quite that, but Mm. yeah, you'd get like these big watery lesions that would start in the leaf and it would rot off at the stem. Mm. Gross. Yeah, I do feel like particularly in like a, a veggie garden setting, for example, with some of these bacterial diseases, often it seems like by the time you catch it, it's pretty well spread through the plant. And at that point, your best option is kind of cultural control and, like you said, get rid of that plant. and Remove infected areas that you can see, clean yep. your pruners in between cuts, making sure the plant is as healthy as it can be. You know, that's really all you can do. Well, with that, I know we've covered a lot in this series on pest management for your plants. As always, if you guys have questions on any of the things that we covered, definitely send us an email at show at takeitorleafitpod.com. Visit our website at takeitorleafitpod.com. And I will, again, post some links with photos more specific to some of these different insects and diseases that we've covered in this series, just so that you all can have a visual if you're interested in pulling some of those up. I think it'll very much help. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And with that, I think we'll close out today's episode. In addition to the show email, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash take it or leave it. Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at take it or leave it pod. In addition to that show email, you can also find all of our links on our website at take it or leave it pod.com. All of our social medias are in there. Uh, my Instagram and Facebook are at N Farringdon and Ethan is on Facebook at E Hortwise and on Instagram at Hortwise. Please give us a subscribe on Patreon so that Ethan and I can continue to keep the show going and buy our gummy vitamins every week. And with that, I'm Nick Farringdon. And I'm Ethan Wise. And this has been the Take It or Leave It podcast. Photosynthesize. No. Nope. <laughs> I will not accept that. <laughs> See you guys next week. Yep. Doodles. <laughs>